All right, guys, welcome and good morning to service number two. Uh, the third week in a row that we've been here and not on Zoom. Praise God that we're not on Zoom. Amen. And I have even more good news. Uh, this is our second senior weekend. So we still have one more after this. So next week we're going to come. Uh, I'll be back in the preaching pulpit here and we'll have uh, our last Christ is Supreme sermon series sermon. And then I'm going to kick all the seniors out to get rid of them. And they're going to welcome new people in. I'm sad about that. And I really am. I'm going to lose those seniors. But that's the way life goes. And uh, all that to say, that's what's happening. But here's what's happening right now. Uh, we're continue, continuing the tradition of inviting a senior, and this, this year actually two seniors, to preach for us and to share something that they feel has been put on their heart by God to share with the rest of you. And so today I am privileged and pleased to announce to you someone that uh, I've been with, uh, which is all true for the last guy, for the last five years. Uh, five years of ministry together where they've sat under my teaching in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and this guy, I remember, uh, actually, I didn't remember this until I searched for it. I have a journal. Some of you guys know that, right? Not a diary, a journal. And in this journal, I searched for his name. And this is what I found. Dated Thursday, April 19, 2018, 5.32 p.m. Um, you can see it right there. I guess I don't have to read it, but there you go. Uh, I saw this guy grow and mature. I've seen, I've seen him do great things. I've seen him do dumb things and uh, everything in between. And, and God has continued to do great things in him. And I am so excited that today Matt Daniel gets to preach for you. So give him a big round of applause as he ascends the stage. Thank you so much, Pastor Rod. So I have a confession for all of you today. And that is that quarantine has been really rough for me. And it's been really rough for me because I haven't been able to do enough of this. <laughs> so with my schedule all out of whack, I decided that I didn't really want to be productive anymore. I wanted to stop working out. I just wanted to go and eat unhealthily. And it wasn't until I had put on 10 pounds that I went, whoa, I'm getting fat. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to get back and get healthy and work harder. But I found that as I came back to start doing this, it was much more difficult. It was much more painful, more tedious, and it's taken me a lot longer to get healthy again. So I've been suffering through this, and I just, all I can think is that I wish I had decided earlier to suffer in order to be healthy than suffer because I'm unhealthy. While personal fitness is of some value, godliness is of infinitely more value. So this message today has, as Pastor Rod said, has been on my heart for a long time. So open your Bibles to Romans 8, 18 through 25 as we get started. So while you're turning there, I want to give you some context. So Romans 6 and 7 largely deal with the problem of sin in the believer. How though we are Christians, we're still imperfect. And how there's a contrast between how we want to serve God, but then our actual ability to carry it out. Romans 8 is much more praise-oriented than the more technical chapters of 6 and 7. It's essentially a pivot chapter, which starts with the amazing phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So read with me as we start. If I can get that on the back there, hold on. Starting in verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God, of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So something we must understand before we dive into this passage is that the suffering that Paul talks about here is of two different kinds. You see, there's the fact that creation is groaning. This sort of personification is an Old Testament literary tradition where Paul is using this to remind us of the fall, that this is about to be his commentary on the fall. And the whole point of the sufferings that he's talking about is that there is suffering that is caused by the fall, which is where any life or property is lost. But then there's also the suffering that Christians experience, which is part of our sanctification and when we're mocked by the world. So there's two different areas for that there. So let's put that aside for a little bit and let's build a little bit more of a foundation before we get into that. So it's important to note in this passage that the one doing the subjecting is God. God has a judicial response, a legal response, a punishment for Adam's sin where he puts a curse upon mankind for the wrong that Adam did. However, the text is very clear that this subjection to futility is not hopeless, but rather is full of hope that one day everything will be restored. The whole point is that now we're living in the midst of this suffering, and that once Christ comes back, things will be put back to the way they are. And that's really an amazing thing when you think about it, that in the beginning, mankind did something so egregious and so wrong against God that we deserved the penalty of futility. We deserve creation to not work with us. But God being so good, instead put forth his plan of redemption to buy us back from the shame that we put ourselves into. The goodness of God is amazing, which is why, write it down this way, point number one, we need to confidently affirm the goodness of God during trials. Again, confidently affirm the goodness of God during trials. I know this is going to sound extremely redneck, but I really like NASCAR. And there's something therapeutic about cars going in circles at 200 miles an hour for hours upon end that I just really enjoy. But the drivers aren't the only people that are involved in this race. You see, there's these guys called the spotters. And what they do is they have this bird's eye view of the track, and their job is to relay information to the drivers saying, hey, there's a wreck up ahead, change lanes, or there's a guy coming up behind you, stay where you are. And they make sure that the driver does his job because going so fast and without any mirrors, the driver can't see. He's effectively blind. It would make no sense for the driver who's blind to say, my spotter's not on my team. He's not a good spotter. He doesn't know what he's doing. When the spotter can see everything from beginning to end. 
If we trust in ourselves to make the right moves when we're blind, which is especially true in the midst of trials, when we can't see outside of ourselves and our own suffering, if we trust in ourselves, we're going to crash. We're going to make a mistake. So we need to trust in God, who is totally good, to keep us on the right path, to keep us from making those mistakes. James 1, 13-14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Again, throughout our trials, throughout our suffering, God remains faithful and good. And that should amaze us. We think about examples like this guy, Joseph. Delivered into slavery by his own brothers, accused of sexual misconduct by his master's wife, rotting in jail for years, only to never lose heart and eventually be exalted to a place where he saves the very people that delivered him into slavery when the famine comes upon the land. Joseph retains his trust in God even though he is suffering. See, God promises us that things will be hard. That's part of living in a broken creation and living in a world where things are working against us. But God also promises deliverance That deliverance is totally undeserved. And that's why we should remind ourselves that though things may hurt now, there is so much coming that is amazing. And it should cause us to remember and to affirm, even when it's hard, that God is good. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Christ prayed, saying, though I know I'm about to be delivered up by a friend. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to suffer the wrath of God. He still prays, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. That's a very hard thing. And a servant is not greater than his master. We need more people who are going to pray, not my will, but yours, Lord, even when it hurts, because we trust in the overwhelming goodness of God. Christ said, let this cup pass from me, if you will, but not my will, but yours. The whole point is we need to be willing to suffer because we know God has bigger plans for us than just what's right here in this moment. Let's look back at the text, specifically verse 18, where it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, the Bible doesn't try to say that there's no such thing as suffering for a Christian. But it's important to remember as we come back to that point of there being two types of suffering that we need to understand how to suffer and what to suffer for. Write it down this way, point number two. Resolve to suffer for the right reasons. And resolve to suffer for the right reasons. I remember during my junior year, I looked my mom in the face one day and said, I'm not going to drive my friends to an off-campus lunch because I know it's illegal. I won't do it, trust me. And she was like, okay, I trust you. Sure enough, I went off, took those kids to lunch, and she found out. And that was terrible. That was, whew, that was not fun. I was grounded for months. Had my car taken away, couldn't go to off-campus lunches. You see, I had a choice in that moment. I could have either decided to suffer because I wasn't going to take my friends to lunch, and they were going to mock me for being a rule follower and someone who listens to their parents, Or I could have suffered because I was disobeying my mom. 
And I chose this option, and it ended up hurting a lot more than if I had just chosen to obey. See, it's kind of the same in Christianity, where we need to choose where we're going to suffer if we're going to suffer, which God promises that we will. The right area to suffer is for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the glory of God. When we're bearing with one another, and that causes us pain, the wrong area to suffer is because we're disobedient. The wrong area is for the sake of sin. And this must be a conscious decision that we make every day. That's why Christ commands us to take up our crosses daily. It doesn't happen overnight. It requires effort and hard work every day. And that's part of the suffering, is getting up and having to go to work and do that. Why should we suffer then? And I know this is hard because... Nobody naturally invites pain and discomfort. There's nobody that enjoys this. But there are good reasons to do it. A big reason is to cultivate deeper allegiance to Christ. You see, the word sufferings in verse 18 is the same one used in 1 Peter 1.11, where it describes the sufferings of Christ. There is a very real sense, Christian, that when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are treading upon the same ground that Jesus trod upon. You are following in his footsteps. And that should remind us that since he has sacrificed so much for us and he deserves everything, that we should be loyal to him and we should follow him, though things hurt, though we ourselves groan, as the text says. We need to be loyal to him no matter what, especially when it hurts. We should also suffer to build up fellow believers. Ethan talked about this a lot last week. But suffering gives us an opportunity to showcase that overwhelming love of God to one another, to the very people that Christ has paid for. This is fulfilling the second commandment. To love one another. That's how they will know that we are disciples of Christ. For this reason, we will build up our fellow believers even when it's hard, even when it costs us something. We should also suffer to elevate the effectiveness of our evangelism. See, the world cannot understand why we suffer and yet are not crushed. Romans 8, 35-39 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything that was listed in that passage crushes the non-Christian. They have no idea what to do when suffering comes about. The way that we suffer well when all of these terrible things happen makes them ask us for a reason of the hope that is within us, and we are then able to give the answer of Jesus Christ and all he has done for me. That is the answer. That is why I can suffer well. That is why I am not shaken in the midst of hardship. By suffering well, people will be attracted to the gospel. So what are some areas that you can better suffer in? Maybe it's spiritual disciplines. 
Maybe you need to spend more time praying or maybe just more time being focused in your prayer. Maybe you don't think that you can understand the Bible because it's too hard or that it's only for the scholars to read and understand the word. A very easy way that you can suffer is by struggling to understand the truth of God, even if it's not easy. That's a very easy way to just get started. Maybe we can better suffer by making time for our fellow believers. Maybe we don't hang out with those non-Christian friends as much, or we don't hang out with the bad influences. And instead, we spend time to come together and we sacrifice for one another so that we are built up and encouraged and sanctified, that we're all going and running the race together better for having known each other and for having spent time together. Maybe we can better suffer in the areas that we're cutting out our sin. Maybe we need to get rid of our phones. Maybe we need to have tough conversations with our parents so that they can help us with our accountability. Maybe when evangelism nights start up again, you need to go so that you get over your fear of the rejection of man. These are just very practical ways that you can make yourself uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel and suffer well for it. See, the reason we don't want to suffer is because we forget verses like Matthew 10, 42, which reads, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The reason we don't want to suffer is because we've lost sight of this reward. It shows that we don't trust God. We don't believe that he's good. We don't trust that this was true 2,000 years ago and that it's still true today. We need to remember verses like this, that even the very small sacrifices, it's not just going out and becoming a missionary and being martyred for your faith. That's not the only people whose suffering is reserved for, for the Christian. It's very minor things, even like this, that Christ takes note of. No act of godliness is ever wasted, no matter its success and no matter anything like that, no matter how hard it is, never wasted, for God in heaven takes note. If we choose to suffer in the wrong area, though, we will never have effective evangelism. We will look no different from the world. We will be hypocrites, no better off than the Pharisees. There will be no tangible and real effect of the gospel in our lives if we do not actively love in a costly manner. I know this is all heavy, but now for some encouragement. This is what makes the sufferings pale in comparison. See, we have the why suffer, but now we need the for what? To what end? What are we suffering for? What is this reward? Let's look at the text again, and I want to hit two different parts of this, where it says, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Then we skip down to verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The whole point of what Paul is trying to say is that we need to write it down this way for point number three. Eagerly anticipate future redemption. 
eagerly anticipate future redemption. There's a power couple in True North that I'm very fond of and I really like. And they're going to be parents, which is going to be amazing. But right now, in this in-between period, there is going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be moodiness. There's going to be wanting to eat random food. There's going to be even the pains of childbirth once you get there. Levi's going to have to try to stay awake the whole time. But the whole point of suffering now is because they know that a child is coming. It is one of the greatest blessings that they can imagine. And it's coming so that that makes all of the suffering worth it. Knowing that something so much better is coming makes this period as if it's no big deal because of the hope of the coming child. Isaiah 25, 9 says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, this period right now is characterized by waiting and by suffering. And there's so many things that happen to us that we don't understand, and that hurt a lot. But the reason that we can say that the sufferings, they pale in comparison, is because we have the hope of heaven as Christians. There's something so much better that is on its way that we need to be eagerly looking forward to. Though we wait with patience, we still eagerly desire it. We should be excited when Christ says that he's making all things new. What specifically should we be looking forward to? Well, we should be looking forward to the redemption of creation first. When's the last time you read Revelation 21, 1 through 5? Was it at Revival? We need to keep this in the forefront of our minds of how no more suffering, no more pain, all things made new. That needs to be our focus you see, at the return of Christ, the curse will be lifted and our original purpose will be restored. In the garden, we went after our sin, we went from glory to shame. But Christ coming in our place and suffering and dying takes us back from shame to glory. We will be restored to our original position in the garden along with the rest of creation Original creation was not futile, and the promise is that it will not always be this way. It will, be, it will regain its purpose, and so will we as part of creation. Not only that, but we should look forward to the redemption of our bodies being part of creation. Death, done. Bodily ailments, sickness, disease, abolished. We will be able to perfectly glorify God and we'll be able to perfectly desire to glorify God. Is that not what the Christians want most? That is at the core of our being, is to worship and to love God. But right now we can't do it because we're still in this body of sin. When our bodies are redeemed, we will perfectly be able to do that. We will be able to stand in front of a holy God without dying. That's the hope of the Christian life. We should also look forward to our relationships being redeemed. Not just our relationship with God, how that has been fixed through Christ, but our relationship with each other. The strife and the friction and the different factions that characterize the church today, gone. Full unity in Christ. 
We will have all of our friends in this room and outside who are Christians, we will all be reunited together without the trouble. We need to look forward to having these perfect godly relationships. In fact, some of you may not even have met your best friend yet. And that's one of the hopes of the Christian life is that we're looking forward to those redeemed relationships. We should also look forward to redemption being better than our wildest dreams. See, legally, our adoption has already occurred. Christ has come, he has died for us, and we are adopted into the family of God, and we possess many of the privileges of being an heir of God, and we enjoy those privileges. However, at the resurrection, the fullness of our adoption is completed. See, right now we have the Spirit, which is said in the passage to have first fruits. And the whole point of Paul talking about first fruits is this is a direct reference to Leviticus 23, 9 through 14, where the Israelites are commanded by God to, when they come into the land that they were brought to after the Exodus, to give of the first things that they cultivate in that land as a way of saying, God, I trust that you will make good on your promises, that you have promised us prosperity, so I will give you the first things that I have instead of keeping that for myself and giving you the not as great stuff later. The Spirit being the first fruits means that God has given us his irrevocable presence, his presence that cannot be taken away as a down payment, the first installment. He is in a way saying, I who began a good work in you, swear by myself to bring it to completion. And for that reason, we know that it will happen. Our hope isn't merely an unfounded hope, but it's a concrete one. It's an expectation, knowing that God makes good on his promises all the time. When we get to heaven, we are not being given more glory, but rather the fullness of glory is being revealed to us as a redeemed heir of God. We will see it in its entirety and all of its blessedness. But now everything is clouded by our sinful nature. We cannot imagine the full goodness of this glory yet, which is why it will be better than our wildest dreams. We hope for what we imagine, and with a sinful nature, we can't imagine how great it's going to be. But that's exactly why Paul says, who hopes for what he sees? It'll be better than anything that anyone ever can imagine this side of death. And that's why we need to look forward to it. This hope changes everything. It changes our perspective on suffering, on friendships, on life. Everything is different when we have this hope that is concretely founded to look forward to. I remember this last year when I shared the gospel with some of my basketball teammates and it didn't go so well. And that was really hard for me because I was effectively cut out of the friend group for that. And I stopped getting invited to go hang out with them and do all these fun things. But was it worth it? Absolutely. I obeyed God, though it cost me friendships. And I know that now your feelings may not correspond to your willingness to suffer, but the promise of God is that for those who endure this suffering, there is a crown of life a day when you are rewarded for your endurance. Though it hurts now, we are looking forward to that.
confidently affirm the goodness of God during trials, resolve to suffer for the right reasons, eagerly anticipate future redemption. This is the Christian life, True North. This is everything to us. But to the non-Christians in the room, your pain will never be worth it. Being part of creation, you are still subjected to futility, to vanity, to purposelessness. There is nothing that you can ever do that will satisfy your soul. Nothing that you can do that will give you direction. Because part of living in a broken world is that we're broken with it. You need to deal with the pain that you have by crying out for forgiveness. Look unto God. Look unto Christ. It doesn't take much effort. It just takes look and cry out. Humble yourself today. So as I close, let me ask you this. What would the church look like if everyone's Christianity was costly? What would our ministry look like? What would your life look like? Let's pray together.